Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. Chad Bearford, you're you're a contributor of Thorchain. Do you actually have an official title, or you know, are you just contributor? Uh, I guess my, my official title would be a technical lead, but uh, within the project, we we kind of shy away from titles in general just because the, it just confuses and completes things and gets gets distracting from the actual what we're trying to do, like from the value proposition we're trying to accomplish. I had JT on last year. And yeah, he called himself um, a contributor and it seemed like the community was very much into this, like, oh, we don't have like a CEO or whatever. This is very much like a community owned project. The problem with having figureheads or like Jesus figures within a project is that they, they become the fix, the, fo- the focus, the, the, the genius behind the thing or like whatever, right? Like, and that, that takes the focus away from what it is that you're trying to accomplish, like value proposition of, of the, the protocol, the network of the project that you're trying to build. And so we try to, to, to like not have any individual person be seen as like the person behind it, uh, because that just becomes, you know, distracting from what we're trying to accomplish, which is like a DeFi protocol that allows people to move cross chain simply easily, you know, decentralized, not KYC, like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, and we have seen the pitfalls of um, worshiping a godlike figure who was the you know personality and the face behind a you know, huge project, huge uh, yeah. DeFi project, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it can backfire quite significantly, right? Uh, then it becomes like your feeling on the project is no more about your feelings about the person. Like, I don't, I don't like this person, this figure, whoever that they are. And, and be like, oh, therefore, I don't like the project. And it's just like, well, that's not, they are not the project. Well, they shouldn't be the project. The project should be the project, mm-hmm. right? And Satoshi is like a good example of this in that like, he's not really anybody. He's not really like a figurehead. I mean, he's a guy known to to help, you know, create Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. But like, outside of that, like, you know, it's you, if you knew who Satoshi, you know, was and that he, who he was, you know, all this stuff like it would to be, you become opinionated on Bitcoin based upon whether or not he was this or that, a Republican or Democrat, right. or lived in this country or lived in that country, or, or was like color of the skin was this or that, or like whatever. Like it becomes a distraction, right? And, and it really doesn't even matter. And it doesn't matter. yeah, you know, after this crypto crash, I realized that um, I, I realized a, an important thing about human nature, which is people ascribe too much credit to other people if the other people have money so yes they 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 think that just by virtue of having a lot of money Mm -hmm. or uh, managing a lot of money that they somehow know what what it is that they're doing and then they listen to every single word every single tweet that they make as if it were gospel they're saying okay I'm i'm gonna follow everything this person says because they made their money, so I'm just gonna follow them uh, uncritically. And then, yes. and then we saw that some of these people turned out to be like total degens, or they got they got got 
by somebody else who yeah, yeah, yeah. is better than them. Yep. Uh, yep. And then it, it it just like it took takes down the entire like, it, two people, literally two people. Basically, it was it was people who basically worship like two main figureheads. And yep. that 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 alone took down the market. And it turns out. Yeah. It yeah. turned out that they could get got. They weren't yeah. fail. No, you're absolutely right. Like people who have like a, a B next to their name, like as as in, you know, billionaires or whatever, like everybody pays attention to those people, even though they're talking about something that has nothing to do with what they do or with mm -hmm. how they even made their money, or like it's just Yeah. It's it's we put too, way too much. I remember when like Elon tweeted about anti-Bitcoin sentiment, like this is you know six months ago or a year ago no a year ago i guess now it's been a while um and like bitcoin tanked just because elon tweeted right and i was just like no man like what is this <laughs> yeah no. it, yeah the this no. it's yeah I, I mean but the but that's but that's um that's that's you know humans and their tendency to bandwagon you know yeah. if they see somebody successful say something they're just like oh same yeah. with Dogecoin. It, you know, as soon as yeah. Elon was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a pro, pro Doge," yeah, and it pumps that. It pumps like crazy, right? Even like Mark Cuban, like he was, he, he was all behind like the Iron uh, uh, stablecoin, you know, system, which obviously that thing tanked. And then, like, and I think he said recently, not recently, but like a, a couple months ago, whatever it was, that like Voyager was one of the least risky places you can put your crypto or something like this, and then. Oh, is that what he said? Yeah, yeah. And like then now it's he did that like on a stage with the CEO next to him, right? Like oh. you know, hand in hand. I think they're I, I don't know this to be true. So, so so please correct me if I'm wrong, but like is it like I think Voyager invested into the, the Mavericks or something like this or whatever the hell it was. And then like, you know, Voyager's obviously oh, in big trouble now things. because yeah. it's because of this whole collapse thing happening now with, with like CFI and all these things. And so it's just because like to, to iterate your point, like just because somebody's got a lot of money doesn't mean they they're going to be right about this or know what they're talking about yeah. at all. Yeah. The, the thing is, you know, people tend to formulate opinions based on some sort of framework they use to triangulate uh, information through. And, and so um, some pe for some for a lot yeah. of people, it's just how much money do you have? You know, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. for but for like, you know, but for but for like but for people like me, for example, it's like the way that I the the way that I formulate opinions is that okay, I'm seeing seeing like what the smart people around me are saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but sometimes a lot of the smart people don't have any money, right? Yeah, but, that's true. They, right. That's true. I I think you and I can both name people at the top of our heads who are like extremely brilliant, extremely talented, you know, very well a person who knows what they're doing, but maybe not the wealthiest person in the room right exactly but they but but you know they they call these things months in advance you know they're like oh yeah. this is going to happen based on x y and z and yeah, you know, yeah it happens yeah. Yeah. The next the next one that i'm um that i'm waiting for is micro strategy to get liquidated and then boom it's gonna take us down it is gonna <laughs> the oh my down. god don't say that mm -hmm. that would be that would be disastrous that would be that would be insane. That would be a, oh my gosh. I think it's going to happen. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, 
it's like, yeah. And, and then, you know, and then it's going to, everyone's going to flood Bitcoin after that. And then it's going yeah. to, they're going to, that would be a major contagion just waiting to happen. That would just oh, spread yeah. out to the entire industry. Like everybody oh, yeah. would be hit hard by that. Everybody. Boom. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's going to be the third, the third, the third wave, the third and final blow for this, uh, for this market to really go into bear hibernation. Oh my gosh. I'm going to hope that you're, that you're wrong about that, but you very well could be right. I don't, I wouldn't, yep. uh, I wouldn't doubt you. Yep. You heard it here first. You heard it here, folks. Here first, people. Yeah. So anyway, that being said, um, you know, Thorchain um, and the builders in Thorchain are still you're you're still um, you're still building. You're still working through this bear market. So you know that that's one of the signals, right? You know, the the people that um, we talked to on on this podcast are are, are builders, and they've been yeah. around for many many years. Um, through several cycles, bear and bear and bull, yep. and, and and it doesn't really matter. You're you're just continuing to innovate no matter what um, the price yep. says. Absolutely. So yeah, you and you guys just launched mainnet. Yeah, it took us a long time to get there, years to get to that point. Right. Building building during the bear, building during the bull, and now we're in a bear again, and we're going to keep on shipping. Uh, just how we just how we are as a, as a community. But like, you're absolutely right. Like. It doesn't matter if it's a bear market. It doesn't matter if it's a bull market. It's always a builder's market. And so for me, I'm it just always, always it's always this. And for me and the rest of the community, we're always just fixated on what is the next thing we can build that would just, in our view, be a game changer in the in the DeFi space. Well, what do you view is going to be a game changer in the next bull market? Um, I mean, I think one the next bull market will see a, a larger fixation on uh, um, like interchain composability. I think we're starting to see that now. Uh, we're seeing someone in the Cosmos system. We're just having new kind of new protocols come out, like Route, for example, um, and and Thorchain's obviously pushing this kind of uh, mentality as well. Um, I think even just, I, I think there was a funny thing of uh, somebody tweeted they did a, a swap from Curve token to Layer One BDC in a single transaction uh, using, using like uh, Thorchain as the as the medium of that from two different DEXs and like the curve protocol, it's the, the official t- curve, like, you know, uh, Twitter account responded to that. Like, Oh, we used to do this like with by like the Ren protocol. Right. And I'm just like, well, that's, I mean, Ren's great and everything, but like we're talking about a, a cross chain composability here of being able to single transaction in a single like swoop, you're, you're, you're doing one transaction, but you're triggering a series of transactions after that fact to accomplish some task or thing that you're trying to do. And Cosmos is doing that too. I think interchain accounts is like effectively doing some, conceptually something similar, which is great. Um, and so, like, I, I think uh, inter like interchain composability or cross chain com- composability is going to be a huge thing in the next uh, bull cycle. Yeah, it, it, that that is really where um, the UX innovation comes in, where you're just abstracting steps away from the end user and right. just um, offering them the same uh, the same f- features. So yeah, if, if you think about it like this, like if you if you if I told you to, in order to drive a car, you had to know what how to use a steering wheel and some pedals and stuff, but you also had to understand like how a carburetor works and how a pist- spark pistons work, pistons work and and yeah. like mufflers and Heavy like body. all these parts, you'd be like you wouldn't you wouldn't like most people wouldn't be able to do it. Like, I wouldn't be able to do it, right? Like it's just too complex. And like that in some sense, what like DeFi is today, like everybody has to be a car mechanic to drive a car in some sense, right? And I think what we're hoping to see in the next bull cycle, especially over the, over the course of this bear, we'll see more protocols come out and more innovation happen that that kind of abstracts away all that complexity of like 
the carburetor and the pistons and the fuel injectors and like all these things. And all you gotta know is, oh, I got a steering wheel and I got a couple of pedals and I operate those things and I get what I want. I get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. I think we're, I think that's where we're heading as an industry, which is where we, so where we need to get to. Right, absolutely. So when you say mainnet was launched, what was included in that, right? Was that, which it was this particular feature, which is um, your, like ThorChain itself is settling on the Bitcoin layer one? Uh, it wasn't so much that. So for us, like, um, we knew what we were building is very, very difficult and very, very like, complex and, and ambitious. And so we, we weren't going to just launch and like YOLO our way into a scenario where, you know, a billion days, a billion dollars would be dumped into the network, you know, on, on day two, which is what we sometimes see in the, the DeFi space. Uh, we knew that it was what we were doing was a lot more difficult than just writing a Solidity smart contract. And so we wanted to spend the appropriate time in like a, uh, in a, a soft launch or like a, a beta where we cap the liquidity on the network, right? So that if anything does happen, there's not a lot of funds at risk. So we can kind of like, you know, baby step our way into that, that kind of position, right? And so we, we spent about a year, a little over a year in that beta phase, just kind of like fine tuning, tweaking, improving security, improving liability, including resiliency, and like kind of just getting everything so it's like a well-ironed, a well-oiled machine in a sense. And so that was really what it was more about, was about just getting it to a place where we felt confident and good about it from a, from a security and safety perspective. That's not to say that, you know, there's not going to be bugs in the future. Of course, it's software. Software is always going to have bugs. But, like, um, we feel good that, that it's ready for the mainstream now. It's ready for, for a wide-scale adoption, a wide-scale uh, scaling. So the first kind of period was just about, like, getting it delivered, getting it working, getting it reliable, getting it, like, you know, solid foundation. And then mainnet was kind of, like, the indicator of, like, well, now we're, we've graduated from that kind of phase of the project. And now we're heading into the scalability and adoption thing. And so what we're doing now with like uh, what we call DEX aggregation is that like we allow ThorChain to connect with multiple DEXs on multiple ecosystems and connect them all into one giant DEX that every DEX has access to all of the assets and liquidity of every other DEX that the ThorChain network connects to. And so like even if you're in like a UI like, you know, one inch or osmosis or like, you know, whatever it might be, like in that UI, you actually have access to every asset on every chain, the real layer one native asset, which is just like, that's like an incredible thing, right? Like that's, that's to me, it's one of the holy grails of DeFi is just like to, to make it super clean and super simple and give you access to all the things you want to have access to without jumping through so many hoops and bridges and like several wallets and, and buy different gas assets and do all these things, which is just like super confusing and dangerous, I might even add. And actually get people like no more needing to wrap assets no more needing to like do any of those kind of things you can if you want bitcoin and or you have bitcoin and you want link or you want gmx or you want osmo or you want whatever you can just go to like any ui and it'll show you all the assets and in a single transaction give you any asset you want on any chain that's that's, that's crazy that's, that's like yeah that's so almost obvious like we we need something like this in the industry it, it is obvious. Um, so, so I actually haven't tried to use Thorchain mainnet right now. But, but is this currently the UX right now? Yes. So um, we are now in the process of integrating with multiple DEXs. We have lots of conversations going on at once. That they're all like moving at different speeds depending upon. A the, any particular ones that you could name right this moment? Uh, 
I don't know if I can or cannot, and I'm I'm shy. I don't want to. Exp- I know some announcements are coming out, and and that people will come out, but like uh, there are multiple, uh, both DEXs and wallets. There's like very well known DEXs and very well known wallets that are also going to be integrating, interfacing with this, um, and so pretty soon you can be on. I don't, I don't want to name a specific DEX until they make the announcement themselves. Well, okay. What about the ecosystem? You know, like. So you yes. integrated Ethereum and Cosmos and Bitcoin. What? Which yeah. ones? Oh, so right now we got uh, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Doge, BNB, Ethereum, uh, Gaia slash Atom. Um, AVAX is coming up next. It just launched on StageNet yesterday. Um, and then after that, there's a bunch more chains uh, planned. Got it. Yep. Okay. So yeah, the Bitcoin ecosystem, which includes... All the UTXO proof of work chains like Bitcoin, Doge, Litecoin, mm-hmm. uh, and then Cosmos chains, BNB, Gaia, yep. Cosmos Hub. And- Even uh, CryptoNote, something we've been building for a long time. So having something like Monero um, or Haven, like these kind of chains, private chains, to have mm-hmm. a decentralized mechanism to get out of in and out of those chains is like, it's like huge. It's really sorely needed. So not only is ThorChain a dex but you're effectively a bridge between all of these chains right uh so i don't call it considered to be a bridge just because in my mind when i think about a bridge this is how i define so maybe this is the wrong definition but like a bridge is the idea of like i have ethereum and i want to put ethereum on this chain and so i bridge it right and create the uh, create this token on another chain that's a bridge because you're bridging the asset itself across a bridge we're more like transferring value across, right? So it's more like a multi a multi chain design rather than a cross chain design. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense? Yeah, but but to me the um it, like maybe the semantics are are slightly off off and nuanced. Um, yeah. But you're the validators of Thorchain are effectively acting as relayers to to uh, to act as oracles and attest to what has happened on these other chains that you're integrated with correct it requires a two-thirds majority of those validators okay. to, to come to a consensus of like right oh this bitcoin got sent in or this bitcoin got sent out or whatever transactions are happening right and, and so what happens on both chains you know when you when you mentioned that uh somebody moved curve tokens uh and got bitcoin back like wait how, how did that actually happen you know they did they have to deposit curve tokens to Thor chain and then Thor chain actually mints and then burns on the Bitcoin chain. How, what, what, what I think in that case, that? what happened was, uh, the, like the UI sent the curve tokens into, I don't know if it was uni or sushi or one of these, uh, DEXs and then got sent, then sent the ETH directly to Thor chain, Thor chain received the ETH, swapped it to BDC. The BDC got sent to some, you know, BC one address on, 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 on Bitcoin. So yeah. They signed a transaction sending into them and they got sent out to uh right. to Thorchain. Okay, so so effectively um the, the way that um the way that the user withdrew Bitcoin out of Thorchain was through the Thorchain validator set who controls um some BEC thirty two address on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And they allow the user to withdraw based on um, um, them, uh, the, whatever they were custody on Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, in that case, it's more like 
the person sent in curve tokens to an exchange on on Ethereum got swapped to Ether. Yep. Ether got sent. Like, so the user never touched Ether itself right. in this case, right. other than their own wallet. And then like for for gas is when they set the curve to begin with. And then the network decided just saw that and then said, okay, we'll send Bitcoin to their BC1 address. So they didn't like pull it out. It's more like just got sent to them. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. But but it's the it's the validators on Thorchain doing the uh, yes. processing processing Correct. in the back end. Right, right. Okay. There are several transactions that are happening, and so the user is only doing the first transaction, and then the network is basically doing the remainder of whatever number of transactions are required right. to accomplish the task that they're trying to accomplish. Right, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and the Thorchain's um, whole uh, value prop is to abstract that away from the end user. So, so uh, okay, let's talk about the security model because mm -hmm. um, I, I did I did talk about this in my interview with JT last year, mm -hmm. actually just right around this time last year, in fact, mm -hmm. exactly a year ago. Um, you know, the, the security model of Thorchain is, is important because obviously if, um, if at any point the, the value that is currently collateralized or staked on the Thorchain blockchain, if it ever falls below the value that is being transferred, you know, deposited or withdrawn, um, then obviously the Thorchain validators potentially could collude and steal the money instead mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. um, acting in good faith. So mm -hmm. what's what's preventing them economically from doing that? Yeah, so that's a good question to ask. So you're actually right. So the the validators of putting up a bond or, or stake, however you want to phrase it, um, of value, and then they're protecting some other amount of value of BDC and Ether and Tether and various assets. And so because each of the liquidity pools is comprised with Rune, which is the base asset of the network, and then some other asset being Bitcoin or Atom or whatever, uh, those two assets, the amount of Bitcoin or Ethereum or Atom in the network has a relationship to the amount of Rune that's in the, in the pool. So if the value of Rune dies for some reason, right, something happens and Rune just plummets 50% in, in, in an hour or something like this, that creates arbitrage opportunity for all the, all the bots to start putting in Rune and taking out the BDC and taking out the ether taking out all these assets before it becomes economically insolvent. And so the network always ensures at all times that, that, that all of the validators never have access to assets that are worth more than what they put up as their bond. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, sorry. Um, so, okay. So, so the, the validators don't actually have access to the BTC or the ETH? Yeah, hey, today would require um, at least, I think it's, I want to say it's 12 or 13 validators to, to collude to have access to the BTC, mm -hmm. but they would have, they would be putting up you know, hypothetical numbers of just like, oh, they put together, you know, $20 million of Rune and they have access to, let's just call it uh, $8 million of, of BTC or whatever. And so, yeah, they can go ahead and steal that eight million dollars BC, but then they're burning the you know 16 million dollars worth of room that they have that they've put it up as, as their bond so it's always economically uh you know non-profitable to do such a thing mm -hmm. okay so and just to be clear they're um on mainnet they're just staking rune mm -hmm. 
Hmm? Okay. Correct. You actually have to do rune. This is actually kind of a fascinating thing. If you were to do something else, say you were to do Bitcoin as the asset instead of rune, that would make the network insecure, believe it or not, as counterintuitive that might sound. And that is because the, the rune asset is tied to the value of the network, right? And so if if somebody just two-thirds attacked, you know, civil attacked the network and stole all the assets, right, the rune would go to zero, right? But if it was Bitcoin, well, Bitcoin wouldn't go to zero. Nobody really cares if, if rune dies, right? Because Bitcoin's still going to be worth what Bitcoin's worth. And so if you were to civil attack with Bitcoin as the as the the, the bonded asset, then you can just take back the Bitcoin that you bought, plus all the other everybody else's Bitcoin and Ethereum and like various other assets, and you walk away very profitable. But because Rune is tied to the network and you take all the Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the random assets, the Rune value almost instantaneously goes down to zero. So you all that, you know, you know, 80, 100, 400 million, whatever the hell the quantity of, of Rune that you bought to acquire and own to get to that place is going to plummet to zero. And then everything this you're going to walk away with, but this is going to be worth a lot more than what this is going to be worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that being said, for for someone to start as a validator in on Thorchain, um, how how much how much is that now to get into mainnet? Today, uh, it's the minimum requirement is 300,000 uh, 300, room, uh, but there's a, always a competition to get in. Like the person with the highest bond who's waiting to get turned into the network is the one that gets chosen, and so it's it's actually much higher than that. It's around like five hundred thousand, mm -hmm. just because there's such a high demand. To, to become a validator uh, on this network that like people are willing to go, you know, up and up and beyond. And so right now it's about 500,000, which is like, you know, over a million bucks. Mm -hmm. So why, uh, why is there such a high demand to become a mainnet Thorchain validator, given that the startup cost is, is relatively high compared to uh, other blockchains that are starting at Genesis, where, you know, the, the, the bond of collateral is like, much less than a million dollars usd yeah i mean that, that's large just because the apy is there like to support it right so uh the apy is between 10 and 15 percent depending upon uh how well your node is operated like you were is that just the left. staking yield yeah that's just the staking yield for you as a validator. We, we don't do delegated proof of stake like most other customers chains a lot of our customers chains do so the only stake in there is the ones that are that are owned by the the operator himself um which technically we have bonded providers but that's a separate thing but like yeah, they provide their own rune. They build a node. They they put up their you know million dollars with a rune. They churn in. They make a ten to fifteen percent yield in that, and they walk away pretty happy. Okay, and and when you say walk away, does that mean that a lot of the validators tend to just like pop in, pop out? You know, no, no, it, or no. Like generally speaking, like when once a validator turns in, they won't be churned out for a few months at, at, at minimum. I mean, unless they choose, they can like tell the network, hey, let, kick me out, I want I want to leave and have an orderly, orderly exit. But that almost never happens, or it's very rare at least. Like the bear market happened and some people start pulling out because of that, which is just, that's expected. That happens in any bear market with any chain. So it's not a big, not a big deal to me. But for the most part, people just like are just long hodling. And most of the time they don't, they barely even take any, um, any um, profits from it? They just kind of let kind of let it let it sit and have the interest earn more interest, right? And mm -hmm. just kind of let it kind of develop the the this bond size just from the the yield earned. 
By the way, if you're not familiar with the terminology that we're using, please watch the primer that we did with JT last year. Uh, it's on Interchain FM in audio format, or it's on the Cosmos Network YouTube because that was before I started the YouTube on my own separate channel. Uh, that's just an FYI. Okay, so uh, going back to, to talking to you, Chad, um, my question is, okay, so given that we've seen a downturn and mm -hmm. alluding to what I said earlier, which is, um, the potential for this market to go even lower than it mm -hmm. currently is. What's uh, like, how does that affect the security model of Thorchain, you know, right now, given that that's, you know, if, if more people are just like pulling out more and more, um, you know, does that, does that affect? No, it, it, it does. So it, Rune's price has, is, um, doesn't need, it's not like a minimum price needs a hit for it to remain solvent, to remain safe or these things. That's just not how it's designed. And so um, there's this thing called the incentive pendulum built into the network where the, the yield generated is, is split between the node operators and the pools, like the, the liquidity providers, right? And how much yield each person or each group of people make is depending upon this incentive pendulum, which is basically based on how much room is in the pools versus how much ruin is in the bond, right? So if things get a little bit off kilter where like the pools get too high relative to the bond or something like, like this, the yield swings towards the nodes and the nodes start earning a, a much higher yield and the LPs make a, a lower yield. So incentivizes the LPs to start kind of withdrawing their assets and incentivizes the nodes to start adding more ruin on that side to kind of like swing that system back to like, you know, to an economically, um, uh, uh, optimal position, right? So in either case of scenario, no matter what happens in, in, in the price of ruin or the, just the bear market, bull markets, who cares? The system just dynamically just operates the way that, and it puts the right forces on the free market to adjust itself to, to keep everything uh, economically secure. Yeah, so right now prices are down. So where where does that pendulum swing right now? Is it it's it's given more yield to the uh, the stakers, the validators, and less I, yield in the liquidity pools. I think right now, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be mistaken, is it's actually quite optimal. So I think the, the yield right now is like a 50-50 between the between the, the node operators and the uh, and the um, uh, and the LPs, which is how it's designed to be. It's designed to have that kind of happy middle ground, right? So the the, the pendulum is working quite effectively, even in even in this, in this bear market. How much is currently locked on Thorchain right now? Total value lock right now is 300 million. So how much are LPs making right now? Uh, it depends on the pool. So some pools are higher, some pools are lower. Uh, let's see here. But right now I'm looking at uh, at this dashboard. Um, it's between, on the low end, it looks like around like 7%. And on the high end, it looks like around 30%, mm -hmm. depending upon what, which, pool you're, which pool you're in. Yeah, so during the Terra collapse, did you see UST and Luna holders trying to withdraw out of it and exit into the pools that it was uh, those those coins were pulled with? Uh, so that actually didn't happen on Fortune's case because the network actually detected some unreliability on on the, the Terra network and paused itself. So like, we have these we have these like security measures built into the the network today that is like dynamic and the network defends itself from various forms of attacks, right? So when it notices something that's like, this ain't quite right, something's not working right here, it like dynamically on the node, the, the network itself will pause the Terra chain. And so we actually pause the Terra chain because the, the, the Terra blockchain was so inundated with blocks that the, the validators um, 
uh, full nodes couldn't keep up to the tip. There were always like hundreds and hundreds of blocks behind, which is problematic for what we're trying to accomplish on this thing. You, so you they, mean Thorchain's validators couldn't keep Thorchain's, up with the tip of yeah, the tail? The Terra full nodes that the validators were running yeah. were hundreds of blocks behind. And they couldn't keep up just because the 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 throughput was just too much for those nodes to be for the full for the full nodes to be able I mean, to handle. Yeah, as Terra was getting spammed by, yes. by transactions. Yes, exactly. And so the the network actually paused itself, and then you, people couldn't withdraw their funds at that time. So the network just got like left in that kind of state. And so once the, the network the Terra network like calmed down and, and got back to some sort of like reasonable like state the network continued and then we allowed the the, the lps just to leave so we, we paused trading on the network as a, as a community we chose to pause the trading on, on that particular chain and so you couldn't arb the price anymore just because we just were to arb to zero because luna is worth like nothing and ust was worth like 10 cents or whatever the number was and so like that gave time for the lps to like just extract their funds before like they're more so the rune because the rune's the thing that's actually still worth something and not so much the, the lunar or the UST, but like it gave them the opportunity to actually get back their room without losing it from some crazy arbitrage of situations. So it actually was oh, very helpful. Okay. So 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 that 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 process happened all rather automatically. You're saying yes. so, so yeah. as as Luna was collapsing, um the Thor chain already paused any transactions, IBC transactions between those two chains, Terra and Thor chain. And then it was an IBC, but it, yeah, but yes, oh, right. Not IBC. Uh, yeah. Stop deposits of UST and and Luna. Yep. Uh, and then the the LPs of those pools had the time to just withdraw uh, their their rune from the pool. Right. Their 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 Luna and rune. Luna and rune, rune and UST. They, they got the Luna back and their UST and everything. Was obviously worth too many. You know pennies but okay like, and, and but they still got pool, it back that pool got deprecated or, or something yeah then that's what? the whole chain what we call ragnarok which is basically just like having the, the pool explode and then all the money goes back to everybody who was an lp automatically if anybody who didn't already pull out just got pulled oh, out wow. automatically. interesting and so this is it just exploded itself out and then we we de, de you know listed the entire chain and then carried on i mean we had like a third of our tdl just be almost zeroed in a very short period of time from this whole terror thing and everything worked I, I, not perfectly but pretty swimmingly one of the lessons learned exploits. we got we had some uh problems over a year ago when we got some uh, an exploit or two and and um we realized we need to take a different approach to security than what most DeFi projects do uh and we took a much more defensive approach where we just built in these automatic systems these like big giant walls that kind of come down when it when it notices something that's not quite right. Like the the network is you know insolvent. It thinks it should have X amount of ETH, but it actually has Y amount, and it's so it just automatically pauses itself to before funds are actually lost, or they use things to to safe, safeguard those things. And so we have a, a series of kind of like checkers within the code base that just verifies that everything looks right. And if anything goes off askew, the network just says, let's just pause it. Let humans come in analyze it fix it carry on before we have into a much more significant problem so can you talk about that exploit and what was the specific lesson learned because the exploit came after i interviewed jt last year so that was like in the very early days when we first launched our, our, our public beta i think it was like a month out or something like this one of the things we learned was um we needed to make our bug bounty program 
more public. We already had a bug, bug bounty program, but we weren't good about like broadcasting it out. That's one of the mistakes we made as a, as a, as a project. And so we went through a, to a mutified to be like kind of official pro procedure and process, put it up on Hacker News, put it on the, in the readme of the, you know, this in the website, blah, 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 these places. That was one thing we learned. Uh, second thing we learned was that we went through a lot of audits after that had happened and a lot of audits before that happened. And none of the audits we had, we spent probably close to a million dollars or somewhere around there. None of those audits actually revealed anything of value to us. We, I think we had in total like maybe nine or 12 including that number. I think I think 10 or 11 official ones, I think, and then like a, a series of unofficial ones. And none of them revealed any any actual real like, like P1 security issues. But when we hired our own team, we actually built a, a security specific team that they're not in, they're like software engineers, they're security engineers. And there's a team of those individuals who've been hacking the DeFi space for years and are quite successful at that. And we built that team and that team was very effective to find, you know, issues and, and things that need to be addressed and fixed. And so like that became a much more effective means for us to actually find issues was building our own security team. And then they actually do the process, not only just auditing the code, but like doing it continuously. Like every time there's a, there's a PR or a code change, they have to approve it before it gets merged to the, to, the, to the main branch, just to make sure that all the code changes being made are always being continuously audited all the time by uh, security minded individuals. That was another thing we, we learned was really, really important. Uh, and then the other thing we learned uh, was that, like, that whenever you have a, a piece of software, especially in the DeFi space, you will never know if there are more bugs or exploits or things that they're in it. Like, you just, it's an unknowable thing. You know that you don't know. It's a, no, it's a known unknown. And so rather than trying to, like, seep through hundreds of thousands of lines of code and looking for, you know, a, a, a small needle in a haystack, in a matter, matter of speaking, um, it's more effective to do these kind of these blanketed approaches to, to security so that even if somebody found some sort of exploit in the, at least the vast majority of cases and they were to execute on that, the network would have the ability to protect itself and keep the funds in turn to the network before the funds are sent out and lost to somebody else, right? And one of the fascinating things with this idea that I, I think is really kind of you know, really interesting is that one of the things we added was the concept of delayed outbounds. And so it's the amount of value leaving the network has a viscosity to it, if you want to use the term like that, where the more value trying to leave the network in a short period of time, the longer outbound transactions are delayed up to one hour, at most one hour. And so if somebody tried to like hack the network and like pull out $10 million, that the outbound transaction would be delayed for an hour. And that would give the community one hour time to be like, wait a minute, this huge swaps coming through, it doesn't look right. Let's you know pause this thing, figure out what's happening, and then fix it, and then carry on, right? And one of the fascinating things about that is that it actually flicks the the economics of being a black hat to become a white hat, because the amount of funds that you can extract before the community can notice it is actually a relatively small amount, and you'll you'll actually make more money as a white hat responsibly disclosing some sort of bug or exploit that you might have discovered, up to a million dollars in the current bug bounty program we have today. You make up more money doing that than you would just actually executing the, the bug and extracting all those funds. You'd, you'd make, you know, 200,000, maybe 100,000, something like this, but you wouldn't make that mill, right? And so, like, it actually changed the economics to, to flip black hats to become white hats because it's more profitable to do it now. What if they found a $200 million exploit and, you know, based on the viscosity, they're able to, you know, take like you know, 10 million of that 
and uh, the bug bounty's upper bound is only like five million or whatever. Yeah. So even if it was like ten million, that would that would delay the, that transaction uh, up like one hour before that ten million could extract. I mean, if you did like like a thousand dollar small trades, like that led up to like ten million or whatever, it's like just kind of like instead of one large transaction, a bunch of small transactions, those smaller ones would get out, but each one would cause the next one to be more delayed and more delayed and more delayed and more delayed. And so like, you'd be able to extract like maybe a hundred thousand or 200,000 mathematically speaking, but you wouldn't be able to get to that million number because the network, we've actually de designed the, how it, how viscosis, the viscosity of this feature relative to what the bug bounty program actually is. So it always kind of ensures that. Okay. All right. That's interesting. So, so the protocol is aware of a bug bounty and it's got that yeah. uh, built in. It's got that in a sense, it's got that literally uh, built into its code base in a sense. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. Oh, interesting. Okay. So is the bug bounty drawing from some sort of community pool, something on chain? No, uh, no. I mean, the bug bounty itself is, is managed by the treasury. So if, if and we've had this happen, people submit a bug, we, we pay out a bug bounty. We've done that in the past. Um, that comes from the treasury, doesn't actually come from the network itself, but the, the network is aware of that bounty and, and protects the network with that in mind, effectively. Last sort of concept that I want to touch on is your slip-based fee model, because um, only two weeks ago, which was in June, Bancor V3 came out saying that, okay, we got to pause impermanent loss protection. And the reason for that is because this bear market uh, turned it so that it screwed our LPs, in fact. Um, so this this feature turned out not to be a feature and rather a bug, you know, and there's there's some interesting conversation around that uh, around Thorchain too, because you guys also have impermanent loss protection. Yep. Can you talk about that? ILP is an interesting concept that the banker was the first one to kind of position something. And we kind of watch what they were doing. We liked conceptually what they were what they were trying to accomplish, and so we looked at the math of like, well, if we had ILP right now, we just look at the actual LPs in the, system, the network, and everybody were to mass leave, just like everybody just left in one second, whatever. How much room would be paid out in ILP? And we calculated it was like less than a percent, like one percent of what the reserve actually has. It's not minting coins like Bancor just mints coins out of nothingness, and so they just have this infinite mint issue. And then, like, is that why in, it broke down for them because they're partially because, model? because like in, in Bancor's case, like they spent more in 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 permanent loss protection payout in like two days than the previous like nine months combined or something mm. like this. Like it was it was really. It, it swung very hard yeah. in a certain direction. Yeah, and that Thorchain's, was some sort of like Federal Reserve stimulus check kind of thing, right? It was pretty, yeah. But in Fortune's case, like even with the downturn of the of the market, and which is obviously not good for ILP, like that still the amount that it, if everybody were to leave like today, hypothetically, how much room would be there? And there's a, there's actually a, a live dashboard you can go to that Nine Realms has. You can actually see the the graph. But I think last I looked, it was like about two million room, which is like. You know, one and a half percent of the of the reserve. It's still like you know peanuts relative to what the reserve actually has, and so it's not really a threat for us. You know, in our case, but partially because like that the slip based fee model, as you brought up earlier, like it's very effective, and that on the average swap fee is less on Thorchain than it is on you know another Dex, but the yield generated by the LPs is higher than it is on another Dex. As counterintuitive as that sounds, and that's just because. Most people are making small transactions and swaps, like a few thousand dollars or whatever it is for, you know, whatever, a few hundred bucks. 
And then you have somebody come through who's this big giant whale who wants to make this huge transaction and then pays ops, ops in to pay a larger fee. Like they made the choice to do so, they knew what they were doing and they paid a larger fee and that larger fee goes to the LPs. And so because of that kind of like, of that math, the LPs tend to make more money with a slip-based fee model than they do on like a simple XYK 30 bips kind of approach. And because of that, the amount, the chances that somebody actually is experiencing IL after 100 days is extremely small. It's more likely in a bear market, but it's still very small. Am I understanding it correctly in thinking that the reason why it works for Rune is because you're not actually minting new money to make up for the IL that has been uh, the the impermanent loss, um, but rather it's just because it, it it is compensating LPs from existing usage yeah, and creating it out of thin air. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think both are at play here, right? I think both are, are contributing to this, to this situation. Internally, like we've never even had the conversation of like, should we or should we not pause ILP? Like that wasn't even, that never even came up in conversation, to be honest. Even after the whole Bancor thing, like nobody even asked the question because we just, we look at the math of it and we're like, nothing to be concerned about. Yeah, well, that's everything uh, on, on my end. What's, what, is there anything that we missed that you want to touch on? Um, we, we talk about deck segregation, which is, I think is a pretty interesting thing. And uh, another thing I kind of wanted to touch on, I think is kind of fascinating for people, is that um, we have this new design that we're working on. Uh, hopefully it'll come out in a couple months or so, whatever it is, but like, uh, it's the idea of a single asset yield. And so you can, you can provide liquidity like BDC, for example, into the BDC pool, but not take on the risk or the, the price risk or the price motions of the rune asset. And so you can provide BDC and then get BDC yield without taking on any other exposure to any other asset in the, any, in the network. And so it's just like legitimately like BDC yield on your BDC straight up, no IL, nothing like this. And the network is, is looking to support that in the next couple of months, which is going to be a pretty big game changer in my view. Can you explain how that's actually done? So if I deposit BDC and I earn BTC yield, like yes, like interest yep. on Bitcoin. Yep, layer one with Bitcoin. Native, native Bitcoin, native Bitcoin yield. Uh, without how, how any. How's that done? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit who's, who's complicated. The counterparty. The counterparty is the protocol itself. So, like, so you are in the end, you're depositing Bitcoin into the pool still, right? With this pool, this Bitcoin and Rune, but you're basically taking a position like I'm. I put in, you know, one BDC is my my deposit, and so I'm I'm acquiring basically one unit. We call it a synthetic Bitcoin in our case, but like we call it synthetic Bitcoin that you that you basically are owning, and then any yield that the, the the pool makes, you get a percentage of that yield because you're you're providing some liquidity to that pool, and then the counterparty risk is done by the protocol itself. So the protocol itself has like 170 million rooting, which is more than the pool's four or five x whatever hell the number is, and so like the the network itself is taking on the others the the rune exposure. And, and and kind of doubling down on its own asset, right? Like it's mm -hmm. got diamond hands for room, right? Like obviously the network is, can't be bullish and more bullish than any other token than room because it's, from the network perspective, that's the thing. And so like, it's just taking uh, on that room exposure. And so before those synthetics would, would take on the risk to the LPs themselves, but with this change that, that relieves that pressure from the LPs and actually now the, the protocol itself takes on the exposure. So then is the protocol buying bitcoin to supplement the bitcoin interest for the uh staker 
Uh, technically, yes, it's, it's, it's actually um, becoming an LP into the pool. And so it's actually taking rune and depositing rune to the pool. And basically half of that rune gets sold into BDC in terms of the, the value of the pool. It's like it's uh -huh. buying ownership of the pool. And so it's effectively owning both rune and, and BDC. And that's okay. that that part that is adding that liquidity to the pool kind of takes away that 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 risk. Okay, so it's buying the BDC from the other uh, BDC LPs. Uh, not so much the other LPs. It's it's buying it from the market more accurately because it's adding wow. because you're adding value into the pool, right? And then by doing like adding rune into the pool, and by doing so, an arbitrage bot is going to buy Bitcoin off the market. And add to the pool, taking out. I see. You know, okay. Room. I so see. So it's not you're not buying it from the other LPs. You're more of just like you're providing more value in the pool, which then arbitrage right. bots and then arbs. add in add in the Bitcoin. Yeah, the, I mean? the the arbors are going to the centralized markets, um, taking Bitcoin, de depositing more Bitcoin to to arbit. Yeah, I mean, it's in reality, it's a lot more complicated than this. Uh, and as a GitLab issue, people are welcome to read and comment and tell us what we're wrong or, or or right or whatever but like uh i think this is like to me one of the holy grails of of, of the space is like being able to get asset yield on any asset of your of your choosing no matter what chain that it has to you know it could be atom token it could be osmo it could be you know bitcoin it could be doge it could be monero right it doesn't really matter all those assets are treated the same there's it's asset chain agnostic and so like you could get that yield no matter what chain or, or asset that it is and that that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, we've never had the ability to earn a yield on Bitcoin in a decentralized way, maybe with the exception of mining itself, like being a Bitcoin miner. But even that requires like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of investment, blah, 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 which is outside the hands of, you know, most Bitcoiners. But so like, this is, I think, a, a big leap forward of actually bringing DeFi to Bitcoin or DeFi to Doge or DeFi to whatever chain we're integrated with, rather than trying to bring them out of their chain into somebody else's chain and then bringing them to DeFi, bringing DeFi to them, which is a very different mentality. I think it's what, what differentiates us from other projects. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens in the bank run case where everyone wants to withdraw their Bitcoin because they said, I've had enough uh, yield and I want my collateral back and my interest uh, mm -hmm. and basically drain the pool um no i wouldn't turn the pool because the act of withdrawing it so if say you had one one bdc and you were in there for a year and let's just say you had 1.2 bdc at the end of the year and you say let's exit the second you leave you've now created an imbalance in the pool now there's, the val there's more value on the rune side than there's on the bdc side so so that's an arbitrage opportunity some arbitrage bots going to put in that bdc and take out some room to balance that pool so it's like you know liquidity pools in general like tend to have like an infinite supply of bdc or rune or whatever the asset is just because as soon as you create an imbalance somebody buys it off the market puts it into the pool to replace the bdc that just left the more worrying scenario for me in this thing is more of like if rune's price is diving relative to bdc right that's when it becomes then basically the network has to like start putting more rune to the pool right to to to, to kind of like to rebalance it back to, to back to quorum in a sense right so the reserve is constantly putting more room to the pool in this type of situation. It has more than enough room to do so. And it's and room's not minted in the same way that it is for like, you know, bank or other, other assets. So this it's a hard cap supply of 500 million. So it has plenty of that to do so. It has more room in the reserve than the than like the pool three or four, five X, whatever the number is. I don't even know what's in my head, but like significantly amount. 
And so it has plenty of space, not to mention it also like when it's providing this room to the network, it's generating it's a yield. So the protocol becomes, you know, at this point, profit seeking and it's just earning a yield from all these things. And so it's just building up its own reserve over time and getting wealthier and wealthier in a matter of speaking. I'm just thinking of a Luna Black Swan event. So, you know, there, there's, there, there's probably an, there's an upper bound there to there, right? Where um, you run out, let's, let, let's, let's talk about the upper bound where the value of Rune in the pool is, is significantly lower than the BTC. So you need to keep injecting reserve into it. At what point does the reserve uh, run out? It can't just be, it, just because, so the pool itself can only have so much in it. Like it's, it's not like a, a Uniswap or, or, you know, some of these other ones where like, there's just an unbounded amount of funds. Like it could be hundred billion dollars, like some point, you know, crazy amounts. The amount of, uh, of value in the pools has to be relational to the amount of security as we were talking about earlier in the conversation mm -hmm. about my security. So you couldn't have like hundred billion dollars unless you had, a, you know, $300 billion, $200 billion, whatever it is um, on the security side, right? And so that would inherently mean that the, the value of rune is much higher than it is now. In which case, the value of the rune of the rune in the reserve, which is you know almost two hundred million rune, which is you know basically close to half the supply, right, is readily available to to support as it needs to. Are you saying that if at any point the value in the pool loses parity with with the value that is collateralized on chain through staking? that it stop, stops deposits into that pool. Yes, correct. Yeah, if you try to do, um, if you try to add liquidity or mint a synth or whatever you say, the kind of, the kind of like creating more value in, in an asset, in a pool, uh, outside of swapping, of course, like it'll, 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 it'll stop it and refund you whatever it is you sent in. Okay, well, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Right, and that would be the right thing to do, right? To like not yeah. rug anyone. Right, right. So that's, that's obviously an important thing is not rugging anybody, of course. Right? So something right. we try to avoid, right? So right, right. Uh, yeah. So we had these economic, you know, design decisions to, to ensure that could never happen, and we kept put these security things in place. Yeah. So that we had these hard caps in the beginning. We had soft caps in the pools. We capped at like five million dollars, something really tiny in the, in the earliest days, and then like we kind of inched the soft caps up over time. But there's always going to be a hard cap, right? Which is Basically, the amount of rune in the pools will not exceed the amount of rune in the in the in the in the bond. Got it. That's basically, what it is. Got it. Okay, yeah. great. That's 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 a, that's a more interesting security model. Yeah, the BlockFi Celsius thing. Um, it was really just Quadriga at a really much larger scale, uh, and they kept you know they kept with they kept accepting and, and Voyager. They kept accepting deposits even as they you know they they knew they were in trouble. Yeah, so that's that's messed up. Yeah, I mean, it's what's comical to me about all this situation is that like that they're they're taking all the points about tradfi that we all kind of hate and disdain, right. and then like inject it into the the, the blockchain space, right? And then call, calling it something else, right? Right. But it's just like, but the fundamentally the same problems you have before of like just like no transparency, we don't know. If you're solvent or insolvent, right on, on Block Five, I, I want to know before I'm depositing funds whether or not you're solvent, right? That's an important thing for me to know as a, as a as a potential investor or whatever. And the fact that I can't do that is like one of the problems we have with like right. traditional it's banks, non-transparent, complete non-transparent. Non so a Dex like Fortune or other Dexes, like 
you know with absolute certainty that it has every set that it's supposed to have, and that's publicly verifiable at any given moment in time, right? And so you know that you're you're, you're in a good space when you go to, to deposit assets onto Thorchain, but you don't know that right. when you're doing it with a uh, Celsius or BlockFi or these things. Right, and and it programmatically stops you from adding more deposits if at any point the protocol is is insolvent. It programmatically stops when you're yeah. If if you're gonna if adding this liquidity is gonna create shift the economic incentive to make it profitable to attack the network, then the network won't allow you to, to add it, right? And even if there's a situation where the network becomes insolvent because it's missing ETH or missing BDC or something happened, like, who, like whatever happened, happened, like it pauses itself autonomously in that second, right? So that nobody can deposit more into it yeah. or take anything out or in or just not even interact with it, just like pause everything until we figure out what's happened, deploy a fix, whatever that fix might be, you know, or whatever happened and then resolve it and then carry on. Nothing right. happened. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. This I think is the power like, of DeFi. This, this, this is the, I think the, this is the thing I think that we're missing in DeFi is like, we need lots of like these kind of short circuits. Right. To like, you yeah. can't just, you can't just like open it up to the wind and like whatever happens, happens. And like, you, you need to have these, sure. like these things in these places, these things in place. Like if Wormhole agree. implemented the security issue, the security right. features of Thorchain after we'd had our exploits, we we create these new um, uh, security like implications. Like if if Wormhole did that, they would not have lost those like 300 and something millions yeah. of dollars just by having simple checkers of like, are we insolvent? Yeah, right. right? And, and, we, and we know that the net exporters of value uh, using DeFi tend to be of the North Korean race. <laughs> yeah i don't know is that true i have no idea a lot of it yeah um i, I wouldn't be surprised i would not mm -hmm. be surprised me or least. or or russian um just because a lot of the phishing attacks are from um like this lunarov group yeah. um yeah like the the biggest exploit from a few months ago on axie infinity uh was north korean so mm right and, and we're you know here here we are you know the, the the chumps that are trying to build value for this whole ecosystem meanwhile it's just getting just sucked out by, by yeah, yeah 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 anyway yeah yeah okay cool um th this was a really this was a really insightful interview chad thank you so much thank you for having me yeah you're you're true chad <laughs> by the way that actually is i get asked this all the time like yes that is actually my name. My mom gave it to me since I was a little one. Yeah, it's it's always been. I actually have a twin brother. His name is Drew. So like we've always had these names are are our yeah lives. yeah. <laughs> was born a Chad. We'll stay a Chad. Was born a Chad. Stay a Chad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on Interchain FM. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Interchain FM. As always, I will read through the pages of white papers and condense only the alpha for you in a one hour long digest. Be sure to subscribe to Chango and Chain's YouTube channel to be up to date about the latest technology and never miss a live streamed episode.